Let's turn on our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I've loved reading this epistle because it's a letter written to a young church planter laboring in a young church. And as we read this together as a church that's only a year old, we're tracking with the very things that Paul is talking about. And so we read in chapter 3, who are to be the elders and the deacons in our midst. And we're doing that very thing. We're training these men and voting on them next week. We're going to read today in our passage about a council of elders. The Greek word there is presbytery, where we get Columbia Presbyterian Church. How they lay hands and pray on a man and set him aside for ministry. We did that last week as we appointed John Pauling in our denomination as a teaching elder. We're doing, as we read, the very things that come up in this letter. Today's text is very important. It comes in chapter 4, and it starts in verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in doing this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit you would do this in our midst. You would allow us to attend to our doctrine and our godliness that you would make us a church that reads this word and it's animated in our lives. You can do this. And so we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. So as we've read this letter, we've watched life and faith. We've watched uh, doctrine and godliness go hand in hand again and again and again. We've seen these things paired together. We've seen what we read in our Bibles animate our lives. Paul is very repetitive because he wants us to get this point. And in this passage, at the end of chapter 4, he really ties together why he has made this such an earnest point in this letter. And it comes to us in verse 16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself, that is on your godliness, your God-likeness, and on the teaching, that is on your doctrine. Persist in doing this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. The goal behind speaking so much about this, being letting doctrine flow through our minds and our hearts and our souls and out through our hands and our feet, is so that this same gospel might be true for us in our salvation and true for our neighbor in their salvation. Mission is what ties these two things together in our text. Now to do that today, Paul hits us with 10 imperatives right off the bat, 10 commands he levels to us. And that's hard to absorb, especially just in in six short verses. But I think there's a way to distill all of that into one central command with two ways to apply it. The central command that we have in this whole section is to teach the story of salvation to ourselves and our neighbors. That's what we're about. We teach the story of salvation. We teach it to ourselves and to our neighbors. And the two ways we do that is to teach one with our Bibles and two with our lives. We're going to look at both of these in turn. First, Paul says, I want you to teach with the Bible. 
He says this in the beginning and the end. Verse 11, command and teach these things. Verse 16, keep a close watch on the teaching. And then it comes to us in the center at verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Now, if we were just speaking sarcastically for a moment, it's easy for a church to get caught up in all the flashy, fun things a church can do. Church can build a media platform, a church can give out door prizes, a church can print t-shirts, and the reading, the public reading of scripture, that gets lost in the shuffle. But even in a place like this, even at CPC, where we kind of pat ourselves on the back and we say we're building ourselves on the word and not on the soft sand of the American evangelical landscape, even for us, the public reading of scripture can be met with a yawn. It can be met with a misplaced sense of duty. I mean, your church might be listening to marriage anecdotes and movie clips. Our church, doggone it, are going to read chunks of Genesis, even if it kills us. Why do we do this? Why do we put ourselves through genealogies on a Sunday morning? Why do we devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture? The answer is this. When we gather, when we pick up a Bible and we read it in this setting, we shape our public and corporate identity. We shape how we think about ourselves. The public reading of Scripture changes the way we view ourselves and our church community. Now, you see this happen all the time in the workplace. Imagine that you're at your office and your boss calls you into his office and he gathers his team together and he says, look, we're going to start reading books together so that we can kind of sharpen each other as employees. And so he reaches for his bookshelf and he grabs the classic text, Jim Collins, from Good to Great. That book is going to shape a corporate identity, right? We're going to start reading this book together and we're going to realize all of a sudden that our greatest enemy is not badness, it's goodness. Goodness and mediocrity and being average, those are the things that keep us from being a great company. That's our enemy. We're marshaled around this shared identity to pursue greatness together. We understand that. Now imagine that same boss invites everybody into his room and instead of reaching for Jim Collins, he grabs Wes Roberts' book, Leadership Secrets from Attila the Hun. Now that's going to shape a very different workplace identity because all of a sudden you're not sure if you're one of the Huns or if you're camped out in the Balkans about to get a serious beat down by your boss. But that shapes, gathering around a shared text, shapes a corporate identity. The exact same thing happens when we pick up the word of God and we read it together. Our minds are transformed by who we are in this shared text. The Bible says this about itself. At the very end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Moses stands up and he says in Deuteronomy 31, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, so that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do what is in the words of this law. Moses was prescribing, gathering everyone together, believer and unbeliever alike, and reading and teaching and studying this word so that we know where we come from as God's people, who we are as God's people, and what it looks like to walk out the door and live in covenant with this same God. Where you find the public reading of scripture in the Old Testament, you also find renewal. 
Two men immediately come to mind for this image of scripture reading connected to corporate renewal, and that is Josiah and Nehemiah. Josiah, you'll remember, he was a king of Israel, and he inherited kind of like a spiritual exile. So Israel, were, were, they were still in their homeland, but they had been under wicked rule for almost 60 years. By the time Josiah becomes king and he orders his men to begin to clean out the cobwebs in the temple, they had not seen this Bible in decades. But somebody finds it and they bring it to Josiah and he gathers all the people and they read the word of God for the first time in 60 years. Can you Imagine what that is like for a body of people to understand who they are and what God has done on their behalf in the Exodus and how he is a covenant God that will marshal them forward in this world. Absolute renewal happens in Josiah's time. A similar thing happens with Nehemiah. If Josiah inherited a spiritual exile, Nehemiah inherits a physical exile. The people literally were taken out of their land and they're newly returning to their land in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah gets Ezra to stand up and to read the words of the law. And when these people who have lived in Babylon and under Assyrian rule for, it, for, for hundreds of years hear this word read, they weep. Because they understand for the first time and in a new way who they are as a corporate identity. When we devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture, we get who we are. We get who God is making us to be. You could kind of think about our identities as a stream. Our identities, how we think about ourselves, is an ever-flowing, ever-meandering stream. It's always changing. It's always being shaped by the contours of the land. And we don't always have a say in what gets dropped in that stream, right? Things can fall into it, things can pollute it, and we don't have a say in what those impurities are. For some of us, the streams of our identity, they're being polluted in very overt ways. We're listening to bad, false teaching. We're we're reading bad books on theology. But for others of us, that stream of identity, it's being polluted in very subtle ways. It can come as simply as an unkind word from a friend that crushes us and it changes the way we think about ourselves. If you think about an identity in this way, when we come to the public reading of Scripture, when we bring this stream to God's Word, God's Word acts like a filter that cleanses and purges these impurities within us and changes and gives us fresh and living water. If we come to God's word and we are feeling alone, we are feeling shameful, we are feeling isolated, that sentiment gets caught up in 1 Timothy 1-2 and we hear grace, mercy, and peace to you from God who's your Father and Jesus Christ who's your Lord. Do not feel those ways. You have an identity in who Christ is. If we come to God's word with beliefs that we're skeptic about creation and how we're to enjoy it, those sentiments get caught up in 1 Timothy 4.4 that says, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And all of these things, we flow into God's word, it purges the impurities in us and outflows fresh and living water. Think about the scene that Paul is is writing to here in Ephesus. Think about what's going on here. We've already read it in the first couple of chapters. Chapter 1, people are diving headlong into sin. Chapter 2, you have men who are angry and combative and fighting with one another. You have women who are pushing their own agendas. In chapter 4, we know that this church is rife with Gnosticism and asceticism. What does Paul say is the antidote for that? 
He says, will somebody please gather this body together and pick up a Bible and devote yourself to publicly reading and teaching and exhorting this? Because when you do that, when we do that here at CPC, we understand where we've come from, who we are, and where we're going. We understand that we've been created by God and recreated by him. We understand that we now stand in the gospel, that we've been forgiven, that our guilt has been wiped clean. We've been redeemed. We are no longer isolated, but adopted into God's family and united with Christ and live a life that's animated by him. And as we move forward, we understand what it looks like to walk in step with the spirit of a God who has made a covenant with us. It changes the way we think about ourselves when we devote ourselves to the public reading and teaching of scripture. That's how we're going to know the gospel. That's how the neighbors we invite are going to know that same gospel when we teach from our Bibles. But Paul says there's a second way to do this. Not, not only do we teach from our Bibles, but we also teach from our lives. We teach from godliness. Look at verse 12. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Verse 15, that all may see your progress. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now we talked about a few weeks ago um, our inheritance from the present day postmodern culture. We said that, that postmodernist Postmodernism causes us to snub any kind of sentiment about personal piety. At best, when we hear personal piety, we say it's none of your business. None of your business who I am and what I do in my private life, what I watch, where I spend my money. That's none of your business. Godliness is not something that I talk about with my friends. At worst, it's the object of scorn. That shapes us more than we know, but that, that impurity in the stream of our identity is being caught up right here in God's word, and it's being filtered out, and the living water that flows out of that in our corporate identity is that if we are a believer in Christ, we are to set an example of what Jesus is like. That's our new shared identity that's being shaped in our midst. Far from being guarded about personal holiness and what we do and what that looks like, we are to become examples. We are to become expositors of who Jesus is. In the same way that pastor gets up and opens up a Bible and reads its meaning and explains it to a people, so also every single day of our lives, we as Christians go and feast on Christ and turn then and exposit who Jesus is to a watching world. That's our call as believers. Now, as we think about examples of godliness, I'm sure that all of us immediately can go to some bad examples. We've, we've seen this kind of thing done poorly and I want to talk about two bad examples briefly. Because there are people who are eager to be example setters in our midst, and they've done this poorly. One example is pride in morality. These are the kind of people who want to be the example. They want the attention of the church to look at them because they are prideful in what they do and what they say and the ministries that they're involved in. They're the, they're the kind of spiritual gurus in our midst. They have every answer for the question that you have before you can even articulate the question yourself. They're quick to show you what's right in their life and what they want you to see, but it's very hard to discern if they actually struggle with sin. That's not the kind of example of godliness that Paul is talking about. That is a cheap, superficial moralism. 
That's not what Paul is saying here because Paul goes on to say, I don't just want you to be an example in your speech and your conduct. People can kind of fake and ad-lib those things. I want you to be an example in your faith and your love and your purity. You might be able to fake charity, but you're not going to be able to fake love. You might be able to fake overconfidence, but not faith. You might be able to fake this kind of superficial moralism, but not purity. The things we're talking about in godliness are rooted in our hearts. Well, if that's one extreme of a prideful example, the person that's proud of their morality, there's also the person on the other end of the spectrum that's proud in liberty. This is the person that wants to show you their sin because they want to be authentic. They want to be real and raw and edgy and they lead with examples of their sin and you start to get a diet of cheap grace from them. I heard a pastor stand up and say one time that in the past year he had never read his Bible devotionally a single time. That's edgy, that's raw, that's real, that's off the cuff, but I fail to see in that 1 Timothy 4.15 how all will see your progress. If Jesus is really living in you, if he really said he, he's going to change you and bear fruit in your heart, where is that? And how do you see that progress in your life and what he's doing? True examples of godliness are personal looks into a Christian's heart. They see the hopes, they see the fears, they see the victories, they see the defeats. They see in some mysterious way Jesus. In the same way that Jesus exegetes the Father when we celebrate next month that he becomes God in the flesh and shows us who the Father is, so too the Christian exegetes Jesus. All of us as believers can turn to our neighbor and say, do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to hear from Jesus? Do you want to know what Jesus would say to you or do in this situation? Then look at me. With trembling hands, with a broken example, we say, watch my life and I'll show you who Jesus is. How do we begin to do that? How do we get a handle on that kind of calling to be Jesus to a watching world? What does that look like? Do I need to start taking Instagram pics of myself at soup kitchens, right? Then everybody can kind of see what I'm doing. Do I need to tweet anytime I sit down and read my Bible? Then I'm becoming an example. The catch for for true example setting is we don't get to stage it. We don't get to put limits on it. We don't get to orchestrate what's going to happen. We don't get to say when we're on duty to set examples and when we're off duty and we don't want to be an example. Example setting comes in real living relationships with other people. Paul will say this same thing to the church, to the leaders of this church in Acts 20. He says to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set in foot in Asia. He's saying, my example to you was all-encompassing. You saw my entire life. It was laid open like a book. I was transparent before you. Okay, Christians, so where do we start with this? What does it look like to show our entire lives to another person? Well, think about all the spheres of your life. Think about the ways you enact your Christian faith in your world, in where you work and where you play in your home. Take one of those spheres, like your home, and think about what it looks like to be a godly example in your home. Because your home is a reflection of you, and you are a reflection of what Jesus is doing inside of you. Imagine you're at your house and somebody comes and they knock on the door and it's a Christian or a non-Christian and they say, I would like a tour of your house and I want you to show me how Christianity impacts your home life. Just, 
Just give me a tour and let me see how this house is different than any other house in this neighborhood. What would you show them and what would that look like? Many of you are coming to our home this afternoon. If I were to give you that tour, we'd open the front door and you'd enter the living room. And I hope your first thought is this is a place of beauty and peace and rest. You're going to see paintings and projects. You're going to see art that we've done. And that's a beautiful thing. I used to think as a Christian that a house was just a shell. You don't hang anything. You don't spend any money on it. You're just kind of launched out from it to do ministry. And Julie has since taught me that creation is good. If it's received with thanksgiving and given back in worship, it's, it's wonderful to pursue beautiful things and to make a place of beauty. As we pass through the living room on the way to the kitchen, we're going to pass the master bedroom. Depending on if this is a PG-13 tour, we're going to talk about cisterns and pomegranates. That's an important part of Christian life. Sexuality, touch, intimacy, a man and a woman together, those are beautiful things. A friend told me that that sexual touch can either be life-giving or life-taking. That is so profound. And in our marriage, we want to be a people who are growing in the former and dying to the latter. And we're on that journey. You come into our kitchen. This is the hub of our house. This is where everything happens. We're making snacks. We're cooking dinner together. This is where all the traffic in our house happens. Incidentally, this is also where we have our greatest and biggest fights. Julie and I, me and the kids, this is where we like to argue. It's just a good, convenient place to stand on either side of the island and just hash things out. If you saw that in our home, you would see that even though we're in Christ, we're broken people. We still, day in and day out, hour in and hour out, put ourselves first and our spouse and our kids last, and we hurt each other, and we say unkind things to each other. But because we've experienced the grace of Jesus, because we've experienced God lifting this enormous debt from us, how can we turn around and hold this debt against another person? So I hope you will also see that we're becoming quick confessors and repenters to each other. You go from the kitchen to the dining room, you will learn an enormous amount about a Christian by who sits around their dining room table, right? Who do they invite into their home for table fellowship? Are, are they just people who look like them and hang out with them and like the same kind of things they like? Or are they really experiencing Ephesians chapter 2 that the gospel breaks down dividing walls of hostility and that extends itself to table fellowship? Who do you see around our dinner table? That'll tell you a lot. Do you see as you begin to think in this way that all of a sudden there are so many elements in our house that becomes fodder for discipleship? So many points and areas that become examples of what it means to live a life in Christ? Now, this actually never happens. Nobody is going to come and knock on my door or your door and say, give me the Christian tour in one hour. That would be nice because I could stage some things. I could get some things ready. It would look really quaint and beautiful. That ain't going to happen. How this does happen is we live life shoulder to shoulder with other people. We're inviting them into our home for dessert. We're asking them to help us with a house project. We're hosting a Settlers of Catan tournament. And in doing all of these things, people begin to rub shoulders with us. And we begin to do life with each other. And people catch examples of what this Christian thing actually means. Isn't this a beautiful sentiment, this beautiful charge that that Paul is giving to Timothy and to the church? I want you to teach the story of salvation. I want you to know there's a God in heaven who redeems and forgives and makes new life. And the way you're going to know about that 
is by opening up a Bible and reading it publicly and explaining it and by living that same Bible every day in your life. And when you do that, when, when I do that, many are going to see Jesus represented and our example is going to be figured in the story of their redemption. Let's pray together. Make this true of us, Lord Jesus. Make us um, a people who are devoted to the reading of your word and devoted to being animated by your word. I am so um, terrified of the idea of being an example, but truly I'm an example of what you are doing in my life, that you have really died for me and redeemed me, that you live in me and are changing me, and there are small and subtle ways that you doing that will show the watching world what you are like. I pray for more and more of that, Jesus, in your name. Amen.